the, uh, the, the thing we've been talking about with uh, romance and dating on Wednesday nights at, at this event, um, one of the things is the need to, when you meet someone, to look um, back into their history and not just the person that they are today or the person that they appear to be today. Oftentimes when you see a person um, in what they are or how they look today, you really, um, if you just make a value judgment based on how they look today, you miss a lot of what made them who they are today, a lot of the substance. And that's really important when you're getting to know someone, when you get to know a person, the person that's in front of you isn't really their whole story. There's a backstory. And if you can understand where they come from and the experiences that made them who they are, um, it gives you a, a deeper, better grasp on the person who's standing in front of you. And the same is true for like groups of people. If you're studying a culture or a nation state, it's always good not to look at just the state of it today, but to dig back and do your homework and, and learn what made them who they are today. That's, that's why we, for example, every 4th of July, Americans, we celebrate the 4th of July. Like we, we uh, celebrate our backstory, our origin narrative. Because if you look at America today, and that's all you have to judge it by, you might think it's one thing. But if you look at its origin story, you, you are reminded of what it was intended to become. And so that's important. Uh, that's important because those things don't always match up, and we're always trying to strive to become the America that we were founded to become, which is based on this idea that all people are created equal, endowed with rights by our creator, and, and we celebrate the blood that's been spilled to defend our freedoms from you know, tyranny and government overreach and religious oppression and all these things, and, and, and that's what we do on the 4th of July. We remember the names that are written on that Declaration of Independence, and uh, we, we honor those names by eating too much, and we drink too much, and we blow everything up, and that's what we do. It's the American way. Like, that's our tradition, but we look back, and that's important. We keep telling that origin narrative. The same is true for Texans. Like, if you're not a Texan, you may not know this, but every Texan, every native Texan has been to the Alamo at least three times. It's just a rite of passage. It's what you do when you're raised in Texas. And if you really want to understand how Texas got to be the way that it is today and why Texans are so proud and so loyal and so stubborn, then you need to visit the Alamo. Go visit the Alamo and, and learn what happened there. And you'll come away from that experience with a deeper understanding of what makes Texas the greatest nation on earth. And... I just say, and, and the same is true for just about anything. Um, recently, I, I came across some old pictures of the stories of first year, like our first Easter. This Easter is, y'all are going to make me cry. This Easter is going to be our fifth Easter. And uh, these pictures from our first Easter are always good to, for me to go back and revisit from our time across the parking lot in the gym. Um, and this first Easter was supposed to be outdoors. But because I planned it and I'm cursed forever, um, it rained. And so we were forced indoors. And so we had to scurry. Our teams had to scurry all morning to get everything moved inside. We had to set up that portable stage we always set up. And it always creaked. And I felt insecure on it because I was like riding a wave on it. It was like the legs weren't secure. And, and uh, you know, we had to set up those awful velvet black drapes behind us. And uh, we had to call up that band we rented from some other church because we didn't have a band of our own and we didn't have a worship leader of our own for a time and and you know we we, we made it work 
And that first Easter, uh, about 300 people showed up. And then the next Easter, our second Easter, uh, 600 people showed up. And then our third Easter, 1,079 people showed up. Not that I was counting. And then last Easter, we had 1,700 people show up. And God keeps moving and doing great things with us. And, and I think he's just getting started with us. But listen, the bigger we get and the fancier we get, not that this is fancy, but it's fancier than what we used to be, and the more high-tech we get, um, you know, the more I think it's important for us to go back and remember how we began and what really it was that sparked our beginning because we set out with a very clear mission to be a community of people that is approachable for non-religious, skeptical, cynical, atheistic, agnostic, spiritual but not religious people to come and explore their questions about Jesus. And I'll be honest in telling you that that was easier four years ago than it is today. Because the longer we're around, the more like a church we start to feel. The fancier we feel, the more our technology works. Uh, <laughs> you know, if we were in the gym right now, because I, I can hear the rain, you know what would be happening right now? The hospitality team would be putting out trash buckets all around. They'd move the chairs around you so we could have a trash bucket sitting where the rain was falling through the roof. This is a true story. You'd be worshiping next to a, a rain trash bucket that was collecting the water pouring through the roof and the water uh, caused the floors underneath us to buckle up. We had eight inch buckles in that wooden floor that, um, you know, trip hazards and all that, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Nobody died or anything, it's fine. And uh, we, had, we had all kinds of challenges but when I look back, man, I'm grateful for those challenges. Um, a year ago this month, I visited my own backstory. I went back to Red Lake, Texas, where I'm from, and I took the Maybe God podcast team with me, and we did some interviews there. And I took the team, uh, producer Julie and uh, a photographer, uh, our sound guy, Patrick, at the time, uh, to the place of my childhood home. And this is the lot where my first home stood. Um, that trailer home you see uh, isn't exactly the same trailer. It looked a lot like it. Um, but that, that's the newer version of the trailer that I was brought home to uh, by my mom and my dad. Um, and it's good for me to look back and remember that we were broke and joyful that we had empty pockets and full hearts, and we were loved, I was loved. And um, anyway, I find that um, the, the longer I'm alive, the longer I'm doing ministry and working and I'm living this inner loop life, the more important it is for me to go back and visit that trailer home and remember where I came from. And the challenges that I've been through, and I encourage you to, to do the same. It's a very important thing to do when you're getting to know someone or something. In that vein, um, we're going to be doing that very thing for the next two months with this new series that is called Keep Jesus Weird. We are going to be... <laughs> We are going to be going back to the beginning of Christianity because some of you have 
or heard things or you've made value judgments based on the Christianity that you see in front of you in 2019 in America. And you have, in some, some cases, you have not looked back to see how it all began and how the inception of Christianity might have looked a little different than what we have today. And you've not really done your homework in that way. Well, the book of Acts is really a great place to do that. So for the next eight weeks, we're studying the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. And we're going to learn how this movement called Christianity began. Because I think a lot of us are more ashamed of it than not. And many of you who have become Christians here at the story, you're still not to the place where you're calling yourself one. And you tell your friends that you go to church sometimes and you can't hang out and do brunch anymore because you're at church now. And they're like, really? And you're like, yeah. But you don't say, I'm a Christian now. You say, I go to church now. Or I really like Jesus. Jesus is cool, yo. Or whatever you say to sound cool. I don't know. <laughs> sound cool to your friends. <laughs> and, uh, but you don't call yourself a Christian because you've made negative associations in your mind about what Christianity is, what it stands for, what it stands against, who it stands against, who it excludes, where it stands politically on whatever issue, and, and that's your view of Christianity, and so to identify as a Christian is a real struggle for you. I hope if that describes you or somebody that you love that the next um, eight weeks are gonna be a clarifying, life-giving journey for you as we go through this um, book of Acts because it is so important that we know where it is that Christianity began and how it began. Now, thankfully for us, there was a man in the middle of the first century who I think between 50 and 60 AD had the presence of mind to write down the extraordinary events that were happening in his lifetime. That man was named Luke. Luke um, was not one of Jesus's 12 apostles. Luke was not even a Jewish man like all the other first Christians were. Luke is the only Gentile to have written a book of the Bible, and Luke wrote two books of the Bible, the two longest books in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And these two books are meant to work in concert together. They're meant to be two volumes of the same work, but when Christians pieced the Bible together, we sort of shoved the Gospel of John in between uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. They really are meant to work together. There's a few things that we know about Luke. We know um, from other mentions of him by name, mostly Paul, uh, at least three times mentions Luke by name, and he calls Luke the doctor or the physician, and we know that Luke traveled with Paul. It's very possible that Luke was Paul's personal physician. Uh, Paul faced several health problems, as we know from Paul's letters. He, we know that he was blind. Um, at one point in one of his letters, uh, he, whoever's writing for him, he takes the quill away from him, and he, he writes with his own hand, and he says in the letter, you can tell this is my writing because it's so huge, because my eyesight is so bad. And so he, he struggled with at least partial blindness, um, he struggled with other kinds of illnesses, maybe malaria at one point in his life, we think. And he was always talking about being weak and being frail. And he, we know that he endured several beatings on behalf of the government authorities. And that might have required some medical treatment as well. Anyway, Luke was probably Paul's personal physician. And maybe that's how Luke became a Christian. 
Because he was a physician, and because he wrote the two longest books in the New Testament, we can surmise that Luke was very highly educated. Three to five percent of the population in that time was literate, and so the fact that he was writing these huge books at all, especially as articulate as they are, highly educated. And you've probably been told that Christianity's um, trustworthiness is in question, or should be in question, because of how illiterate and uneducated the first Christians were. You've probably been told if you went to college by some uh, smarty pants student or professor who said, you know, you can believe science or you can believe these backwater illiterates who wrote the Bible. And I wish, I hope you had the presence of mind to ask them how an illiterate writes anything because it can't happen. And so several of the first Christians were in fact highly, highly educated and several were wealthy. It wasn't all, you know, poor or illiterate or backwater. It was a very diverse community. And and Luke um, was part of, you know, the upper echelon of um, society. He was a prolific writer. The Gospel of Luke and Acts uh, total over 40,000 words in length. Um, I wrote a book recently. Uh, maybe, maybe you remember because I, I never stopped talking about it. Uh, <laughs> my book is about 35,000 words uh, long, and I wrote it on a MacBook with electricity and with Google Docs and Starbucks. And Luke wrote 40,000 words with a quill and some ink and a parchment scroll and no Starbucks by candlelight. I don't know how he did it. It required such discipline and dedication and, and commitment. Um, and so uh, th- this is the kind of man we are dealing with. I hope you can conceive of him as the source of this book we're gonna be studying. Um, you can tell that Luke and Acts are meant to be a box set just by how he starts both books. And I just wanna give you an example of this. This is the first chapter of Luke, uh, the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account. So there had been many attempts to offer an orderly account of the events of Jesus' life. About the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's the man he's writing to. It's a very common name at the time, Theophilus. It means beloved of God. Um, and it almost was this church's name, by the way. I'm, we were within a breath of being called Theophilus Church. I'm not even joking. The reason is because this is St. Luke's, Gospel of St. Luke's. That's St. Luke's. I was like, St. Luke's can start Theophilus. It's going to be awesome. There's already weird named churches in Houston. We've got Ecclesia and all these other places. Like, let's be Theophilus. It's no more weird. And somebody was like, I would never invite my friends to Theophilus Church. So uh, here we are, the story of Houston. So... <laughs> So close. Um, so, I said, my dear Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that's how he starts his gospel. And then volume two, um, the first few, two verses of Acts, he starts this way. In my former book, that's the gospel, Theophilus, I wrote, so it's the same audience, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave instructions through the Holy Spirit Hang on to that, to the apostles that he had chosen. Um, What makes Luke special for us is that he was writing to skeptics. He's answering questions that believers weren't asking. He's addressing doubts that died in the wool, first-gen Christians weren't having. He's writing for skeptics, and that's our mission. 
It's to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. And so this is our bread and butter. And Luke has done his homework, y'all. Luke, even people that aren't Christians, scholars, historians that don't buy the spiritual stuff, they hold Luke in such high esteem because he clearly did his homework. He gets every name of every public official correct, and he spells it correct, both Hebrew public officials, Jewish officials, and Roman government officials. He names every place that he names correctly, spells it correctly. He gets every title of every public official correct, both Jewish titles and Roman titles. Every detail is just spot on. This guy wants to get it right. He wants to be accurate. The truth matters to this guy. And so I think the difference that makes is if you are a skeptic and you pick up the gospel of John first, let's say, clearly John is written by Jesus's best friend, or he wants to he wants you to think he's Jesus' best friend because he's always calling himself the one Jesus loved. Like, that's who he calls himself. And, and, you know, so clearly there's some bias there if you're a skeptic. And you can claim bias confirmation with John's writings. Luke makes that a more difficult claim to make because he is clearly going out of his way to do his research. He's like a journalist. He's interviewing all the eyewitnesses. He's collecting all the data. He's offering an orderly account. You can see his scientific mind working through his writings. And, and so uh, I hope if, if you're on the fence or if you're skeptical that you'll be at least open to Luke's balanced and uh, academic approach. Here's the passage we're gonna focus on for the rest of the day. It's the, it's the next six verses in chapter one uh, after the one we just read. So it starts in verse three. It's gonna be on the screen, but you also have study guides that I made for you so you can, uh, you can use those or obviously your own Bible or Bible app. Start in verse three, we'll read through verse eight. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them, to the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is after the crucifixion. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still hoping for this nationalistic vision and they still don't quite get it yet. But he said uh, to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So a couple of things here. First is that baptism by the Holy Spirit thing that uh, weirds people out. People think Pentecostal stuff and like we're going to roll around in the aisles. Can we have that passage up a little bit longer? Um, and, uh, and all that means is that there's, there appear to be two different events in the believer's life. Sometimes these happen at the same time. Sometimes they happen in separate times. For me, it was separate. And for many believers, it's separate. You're baptized with water, and the water baptism is a public proclamation of what uh, God is doing in your heart, and you're repenting, and you're being washed of your sins, and all of that. And then there is this um, baptism of the Spirit, or indwelling of the Spirit. And, and we know this is a thing. It happened to Jesus. Jesus is baptized with water. He gets out of the water with John the Baptist. He gets out of the water, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon him. 
And then for the rest of the Gospels, Jesus is said to be led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. And that's when he starts living an extraordinary life. For 30 years, Jesus' life was fairly ordinary, virgin birth notwithstanding. <laughs> but between those events, the virgin birth, well, maybe the wise men, that was weird. But then the, and the baptism, like it's pretty ordinary. He had a job, he was in construction, he had a family, he did his thing. He was the firstborn. He probably took up the family business. When Joseph died, he was just an ordinary guy. And then the Holy Spirit answered him. The Holy Spirit took up residence in him. And for the rest of his time on earth, he's working miracles. He's telling parables. He's facing down principalities and demons. And he's forgiving people for nailing him to a cross in real time. And he's rising from the dead. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is incredibly important. And some of you have been baptized with water. You've made the public proclamation. Maybe you're okay with Jesus and everything, but you still feel like your faith is feckless, like there's no power there, because you still lack the gift that Jesus promised the disciples. All right. The other thing in this passage, clearly, uh, that would have been strange to Jesus' followers for them to hear was this call to evangelism, y'all. This is normal, normal for Christians to hear about today. I don't know if you've ever been around Jewish uh, communities or the Jewish faith very much, but I don't think there's ever been a less evangelistic religious group in the world than the Jewish religion. Like, they really don't want anyone to join. They're like, if you want to join, like, okay, here's three and a half years worth of work you have to do to join up. And that's fine. I'm not, that's not disparaging. I'm just saying it wasn't in their cultural DNA to hear, you're going to be my witnesses throughout Judea and in enemy territory and to the ends of the earth. You're going to go and tell everybody and convert the world. And his disciples were like, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, I don't. You know what that looks like. Like, how do you go and testify and, and bring people into uh, community? Well, Jesus had uh, a, a mission, a purpose for them to tell the world that he indeed was alive again. That is Luke's mission in writing this book of Acts, is to make the case that Jesus was alive. And not just like a ghost or a spirit, but in, in the flesh, that he was bodily alive. And he ate with them and they touched his wounds and all that stuff. Luke's trying to say here, guys, something truly extraordinary happened here. Jesus, after being dead, lived again. Guys typically don't pull that off. And so we should think about this. Like what's happened here? Like what are the implications of a man coming back from the dead, speaking of the kingdom of God that is coming to overthrow all the kingdoms of this world, talking about eternal life, telling us that he's God. Like what is going on here? And this is the only point that matters. And you, because maybe you've experienced the church today and you've seen Christians acting badly today, or talking heads claim to be Christians on the news today, you think Christianity is about this issue, or that issue, or this party, or that party, or you think Christianity is about this, you know, uh, uh, the, being a right person, or being a left person. Christianity is about arguing, and you know, like insiders and outsiders. No, Christianity all comes down to was Jesus alive or not. All of it, depends on that point. And if he was, everything has to change. If he wasn't, 
what are we doing here? Why aren't we at home in our pajamas watching the storm roll in? That sounds delightful, does it not? Who wants mimosas and a storm watch? What are we doing here? If Jesus wasn't alive, you can go have that. Because none of this makes sense without it. And that's the most extraordinary claim Christians make. That's the most extraordinary claim any religious group or any group at all has ever made. Uh, To this date, there's never been a more extraordinary claim that requires a greater leap of faith. But there's also never been a truth claim made by individuals or a group of people, secular or religious, that has so revolutionized the world. Taking the world by storm. Christianity was the first movement to cross national and ethnic, cultural, and language borders. Christianity was the first movement, secular or religious, to bring rich and poor together and call them sisters and brothers. Christianity was the first movement to bring different religious groups together as one. Christianity was the first movement that said, your slave is your brother. He's not your slave. He's your brother, your sister, and he has every bit the integrity and the dignity that you have. Christianity is the first movement that really took seriously the education and empowerment of girls and women and continues to today wherever it spreads. Today there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world and the movement continues to grow 2,000 years after this man was alive again and Luke told us about it. 2.2 billion people, and in places where women and girls are still oppressed and slaves are still held and trafficked, the gospel message remains the same. One of empowerment, one of revolution. It is in the most diverse and longest lasting movement in history. So, that's what we're called to tell the world about. That's what the first Christians were called to bear witness too. But then Jesus told them to wait. Why? Why wait? Well, he said, wait for the gift. What gift? Well, there's this gift that Jesus mentions in the Gospels. In, in fact, in Luke 11, this well-known passage in Luke 11, which is incredibly misinterpreted by us wishful thinkers that hope he's talking about material things. So Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And we're like, this is great. We can have whatever we want. I'll have this and that and I'll have a man to marry me and I'll have this and you know, it's like all this stuff. And, and then he says at the end, your father loves you even though you're evil, evil children. Your father loves you and he will give good gifts How much more will your Father in heaven, this is the last two lines, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come because the Holy Spirit is where Christianity derives its power. Without it, we're power. Without him, it's not an it. Without him, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, we are powerless. All right. So, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to do his miracles, to fulfill his purpose. How much more do we need the Holy Spirit today? Why uh, did the disciples have to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come and fill them? 
Can't the Holy Spirit find us and fill us on the go? Couldn't they have already gone and set out to Judea and the ends of the earth and all that and been filled by the Holy Spirit on the way? Of course, but is there a greater risk of distraction and the enemy's deception and temptation when we leave the fellowship? Of course. So he said, wait in Jerusalem, wait together, and the Holy Spirit will come. Now listen, I think this same principle applies for many of us. Some of y'all, and I don't, this is not an insult, this is just what I see, like some of us in this room have decided we're okay with Christianity, we're good with Jesus, we did the water baptism, and uh, you know, it's kind of a now what kind of thing. You still feel like something's missing, like other Christians have something that you don't. And it's true. You were created with a purpose, and we all were. You were created for the purpose of sharing the gospel with the world. That's the reason you exist. It's the reason you're alive. Your purpose is not to be successful, so stop aiming for it. Your purpose is not to get married, so stop living for that. Your purpose is not to have kids. Your purpose is not to raise straight-A kids. Kids, your purpose is not to be straight-A kids. You can tell your parents, Pastor Eric said that. Next time there's a report card. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is not to get in the right school. Your purpose is not to have the right career. That's not why you're here. That stuff is all really great icing. It's a terrible cake. And when you put that at the center of your life, you set yourself up for misery. You can have all that stuff, success and straight A's and all of it, and you can be in hell on earth. Your purpose is to share the gospel. But before you can get there, Jesus says, wait, wait with the fellowship. Because you can't give what you don't have. You can't offer up what you haven't received. And if you feel like you believe, but you still lack power, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Wait and ask. I would encourage you, in fact, not to go out and try to be a gospel-sharing Christian before you have the Holy Spirit, because you know what happens when you do that? You become one of those polite Christians who's nice to everybody, but everybody kind of sees through you, and there's no power there. You don't have the words to say in the right situation. Like You don't have anything supernatural happening inside of you, and what ends up happening is that our faith gets co-opted by our politics or some other worldview we had before and becomes a secondary thing. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're following Jesus, you can't be normal. If you're following Jesus, you're an evangelist. Yep. You, that life you've been living, those things you've done, those mistakes, you're an evangelist. Would you just do me a favor? Would you look at the person right next to you, just for a second, just look at the person next to you and say, hi, 
my name's, whatever your name is, go ahead. And I'm an evangelist. Say it like you mean it. I'm an evangelist. And I'm not normal. <laughs> I'm an evangelist and I'm not normal. Listen, the reason you can't be a Christian and normal is because of our backstory. Christianity at its inception was heresy to the Jewish leaders and criminal to the Roman leaders. It was sedition to say that anyone other than Caesar was Lord and Savior. And here we were saying Jesus was Lord. <laughs> and with that, I, <laughs> if you're watching online, we just had the big like rumble of thunder as I said that or something. <laughs> uh, listen, when the Holy Spirit fills you, he will make you weird. When you become weird, you know you're doing it right. Because Christianity has always been at its best when it's weird and at its worst when it's normal. Because the one who started it all, he was a little weird too. And I hope we keep him that way. This idea of being full of the Holy Spirit should not freak you out in the least. Everybody's full of something. <laughs> You're full of something today. It might be the Holy Spirit or something else. You can be full of yourself. You can be full of envy and pride. You can be full of evil. You can be, you can be full of it. I've been told that I'm full of it. <laughs> no. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not a complicated religious formula. There's no life you have to live or rules you have to follow. All Jesus says is ask for it. I've got a real simple and honest question for you, and I had to ask myself this. When was the last time you asked God for his Holy Spirit to come and fill you? Has it been a while? Ever? We ask God for things all the time. I ask God for things this week. Give us this, give us that, some healing, some miracle, some, you know, breakthrough. When was the last time you asked God for the Holy Spirit? There is no more important prayer than that. And Jesus said that's all it takes is to ask with an open heart and believe that you have the gift he's promised when you ask. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Send your spirit into my life. Make me weird. Make me an evangelist. I'm sick of being normal. I'm tired of being polite. I don't want to just be nice. I want to be weird like Jesus. Holy Spirit, come into me. Would you pray with me? God, Holy Spirit, we're sorry that we have forsaken you and forgotten you. We all think of the Father and believing in the Father. We all think of the Son and following the Son. And Spirit, we don't always know what to do with you. Holy Spirit, come. 
in this place and move among us and fill us up, transform us from within and send us out when we're full, send us out to bear witness to a world so desperately in need of hope to bear witness to the greatness of your gospel. The one true God loves not just us who are Christians, but all the world so much that he gave up his own life to make his love known to us. Fill us, Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. Amen.